Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 10, we read, His disciples, that is the disciples of Jesus, said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. The disciples have just heard the Lord Jesus' teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce. In verses 1 through 9, Jesus in verses 1 through 9 gives a very high view and picture of marriage that God created human beings, male and female, to be married under most circumstances, that they could experience unity in a lifetime commitment that would include trust and respect and affection. Jesus pointed out that what God joined together, we ought not to separate. That things that belong together according to the plan and the purpose of God should not be divided. Their stunned answer is verse 10. If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If the disciples thought that only sexual infidelity or adultery is the only way to get out of a bad marriage, they saw singleness as the only viable option. And so Jesus is going to make it clear again that God's plans and purposes that for the Christian we are not to divorce if one partner or the other were involved in sexually immoral behavior, divorce is allowed but not required or even preferred. Sometimes because of the severity of sin. Sometimes because of the depth of the wounds. Sometimes because of the hardness of heart, Jesus said. Divorce takes place. Divorce should never be the first option or the second option or even the third option. It's the final option after exhausting all alternatives. And so the disciples were in effect saying, look, if there's no way to get out of a bad marriage, maybe it's better to remain single. But I'm going to suggest to you that even their question is incomplete and deficient because they're suggesting that there is no other choice. But there are other choices about making marriage wholesome, making marriage satisfying, making marriage healthy and romantic and, and intimate and fun. It's interesting to me how Jesus is going to once again draw them away from man's opinion and speculation and point them to the heart of God. For others, singleness in part is an option, but for others, it's the only option. Clearly, being single is a calling by God, just like marriage 
is a gift from God. But for some people, marriage is unbearable. And for some people, singleness is an unbearable burden, a crushing, unwelcome consequence. Some people find themselves in a, single of single, or in a season of singleness and see it as a punishment or a prison of loneliness. And so in verse 11, look what it says. But he, that is Jesus, says to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Scholars argue whether or not Jesus is making reference to verses 1 through 9 concerning his teaching concerning marriage and divorce, or whether or not he's making reference to verse 12 concerning the issues of singleness and celibacy. Does Jesus elevate singleness above marriage? I think that the answer is no. Singleness isn't elevated above marriage because the whole context is what Jesus is talking about in the relationship of marriage. But singleness is in part a season for most people. Do the disciples think that lonely singleness is preferable to risky marriage? I think Maybe that the answer is yes. A more important question probably would be, do you feel the same way? Do you feel the same way that given what Jesus says and what the Bible says about marriage and divorce and remarriage, given what Jesus is going to talk about, is are those the options? And again, what I, what I want to be able to do is point you away from that attitude to a different attitude where there is an option that sometimes people don't talk about and that's to have a fulfilling marriage to have a Christ honoring season of singleness and so every once in a while Jesus will bring to their attention the fact that not everyone is going to believe what he has to say. The popular culture in which we live intimates that marriage is maybe an essential part of a fulfilled life, but the popular culture doesn't have the biblical view of marriage, and it certainly doesn't have the biblical view of being single and serving the Lord. Some argue that Christians should voluntarily choose to remain single to better serve the Lord. And there's an argument that can be made. The Lord's comments on the subject, again, are in the context of God's plan, God's purpose, and God's design for marriage. And so when Jesus says, all cannot accept this saying or teaching, I'm going to suggest to you not everyone will accept the words of Jesus. Not all are given the gift of marriage. Not all are given the gift of singleness. To remain single when you're called to be married is perhaps one of the most frustrating circumstances to, to find yourself in. But according to the Bible, we are given great freedom in Christ. We're free to marry. In the New Testament, the writers would say, do not forbid to be married. Some choose to remain single. 
For those who desire to marry, it isn't less spiritual. And for those who choose to remain single, it isn't an automatic sentence of unfulfillment or less fulfilled. For some, there are legitimate restrictions or prohibitions where marriage isn't an option. And so Jesus is going to give three examples of people who are single. He's going to talk about people who are single because of birth at the beginning of verse 12. They're single because of men in the middle of verse 12. They're single by choice. Or they're single again at the end of verse 12. So at the beginning of verse 12, it says, For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. Jesus points out that some people are born with physical handicaps that prevent them from having normal relations, sexual relations with the opposite sex. If I were to sum up the entire story of the Bible in four words, I would use the word creation and fall and redemption and restoration. In those four words, we have this panoramic picture of all that the Bible has to say about the human condition. And we as Christians believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But we also as Christians believe something horrible has happened. Something terrible has happened. There's been something that has happened that has caused people and maybe marriages and maybe individual hearts that something has gone wrong. And so Jesus points out people who are born with a congenital birth problem. They might have undeveloped or underdeveloped sexual capacities. When I was on the radio, one of the frequent questions I would be asked would be about the problem of hermaphrodism. Maybe that's a, a term that's unfamiliar to you, but about one in every 10,000 births results in a child tragically being born sometimes with two sets of genitalia. That doesn't mean that there isn't a dominant gender, whether male or female. But as you can imagine, some people are born under circumstances that it's going to make it very, very difficult. Now, I'm not saying that every person born with difficulties or with handicaps or with um, underdeveloped or no developed capacities don't have uh, the possibility of marriage or even fulfillment. What I'm talking about is that Jesus is bringing to our attention that there is a group of people who exist who for reasons not their own are never going to be able to enter successfully into a marital relationship. So again, Jesus speaks of a eunuch, a person who's incapable of having sexual relations because of a physical problem. Some people simply are not wired to be married. They're not freaks. They are not misfits. Every single human being born in this world are loved by God. Loved by Jesus. They are valuable. And physical limitations 
doesn't mean that there is no plan, no purpose for their lives. And so Jesus also brings up people who are single because of humanity. And at the middle of verse 12, look what it says, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Now, in our culture and society, we don't practice castration in order to protect our women. That's not a part of our culture. That's not a part of our society. But in ancient cultures in the Middle East and even elsewhere around the world, there would be kings and they would have harems. And sometimes men would go through a program of either voluntary or involuntary castration. The male guards who had charge of the king's harem were often surgically altered to ensure that no inappropriate sexual relations took place. Sometimes during profound seasons of war and difficulties, people would be captured and they would be taken and that they would be enslaved. Scholars suggest that maybe people who were captured even during the Babylonian captivity, like Daniel and his companions, may have suffered at the hands of the rulers. We have no way of knowing that, but we have every way of knowing that clearly it was a practice that took place. Historical records indicate that the priests of Diana in Ephesus practiced self-mutilation. And as horrible as that might sound, some parents have had their own children castrated as offerings to pagan deities in the past. And we might think about this horrible practice and we might think about it as being sickening and revolting. And well, we should but we would be making a serious mistake if we thought that it was limited to the past or days gone by. You see, we also live in a culture and a society that has now begun to suggest that gender fluidity takes place. That even though the Bible says that God made them male and female, that there are spectrums of gender. We know as Christians that that's not true. But again, in sensitivity, we should be able to recognize that, again, we live in a broken world with broken people who've experienced, have, have had all kinds of broken experiences. I personally have known people who have suffered from, from what people call gender dysphoria or People who, who in their heart of hearts, in their soul of souls, are born a male and they think that they're female. Or they're born a female and they think that they're a male. And there is a problem and there is a struggle and there's a profound difficulty that takes place. And again, we live in a culture and a society where in America, not in ancient pagan culture, in America... If you're 10 years old or 11 years old and you're a young girl or you're a young boy and you suggest to your parents that, that you're a different gender, there are parents who will take their children to the doctor and fill them with drugs and even offer a surgical alternative. The problem, of course, is that you can surgically rearrange a person's body but you can't surgically rearrange their gender. Now I'm saying all of this not to be insensitive to the people who are suffering 
but to remind you that we live in a broken world with broken people and that the gospel still is the solution to brokenness. That we need to give people hope and grace and mercy. Remember we talked about creation and the fall, redemption and restoration. We live in an imperfect world, but there is a gospel that gives people hope so that they can find their way into a right relationship with God through Jesus. That's what the gospel promises. Now, a castrated person doesn't have the same sexual desires as a non-castrated person. So there are people who, because of accident, who, because of injury, because of surgery, are sometimes precluded from marriage. And so, again, Jesus points out there's a singleness because of congenital issues. There's a singleness because of surgery, accident. But he also points out that there are people who are single because of choice. At the end of verse 12, look what it says. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And then Jesus says, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now again, some are eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The first two mentions of eunuchs are people who by reason of physical disability or surgical alteration or physical accident have some sort of diminished capacity or no capacity whatsoever to enter into normal marital companionship. The third is a reference to a person who voluntarily makes the choice to remain single for the kingdom of heaven's sake. The idea of self-mutilation or mutilation of the flesh in order to please God isn't a biblical notion, but a pagan notion. And so again, when Jesus says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, I'm not suggesting to you even for a moment that Jesus is, is promoting self-mutilation to honor him. Such a concept doesn't exist in the Bible. One of the early church fathers was named Origen of Alexandria. He was a pupil of another church father named Clement. He read this particular passage and he went and had himself emasculated. Later, he said, I've misinterpreted the text and I've misapplied the text. You see, there's a time to get the text right and a time to get the, when you get it wrong, that it's a fairly unforgiving conclusion. Most of you are familiar with the passages of Scripture where Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your arm or your hand offend you, cut it off. Is Jesus suggesting that you blind yourself or that you cut your hands off? No, it's, it's called hyperbole. There's an exaggeration that is taking place in order to make a point. One church father wrote, the true eunuch is not he who cannot but he who will not 
indulge in fleshly pleasures. And so Jesus points out that there are people who are going to voluntarily make the choice to remain single. And again, he, he's doing it to remain celibate in order to serve the Lord. All the evidence in the New Testament indicates that Jesus was single, that he was celibate. He was single and celibate in order to serve the Lord. Because there are people who get angry and there, there are people who get frustrated. They might think, well, I, I don't get it. How could God do such a thing? How could God allow a child to be born under circumstances that aren't normal? Or, or how could God punish a person by making them single all of their life? Or how could God punish a person by not allowing them to sexually express themselves in whatever form or fashion they desire? And a right reading of the New Testament reminds us that this isn't about a God who has created crippled or deformed people, but rather a God who has created a world perfect, a world that has been blighted and fallen into sin, a world that needs a savior, a world where redemption is offered in the person of Jesus. Some people will say, well, how can a person make a choice between the physical love of a lifelong partner and devotion to God? And the right answer, of course, is part of this passage. At the beginning of the passage, in the middle of the passage, and towards the end of the passage, which we have now read, because I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is inviting his disciples to embrace the belief of God's plan and God's purpose and God's heart concerning what it means to be married, concerning what it means to be single. Sometimes God allows people to remain single in order to go places and do things that are unique to their gift and their calling. Someone has said, he who travels the fastest travels alone. And those of you who are familiar with going across the country, you understand that sometimes it's way easier to get to a place without a wife or without a kids. Again, this isn't an argument to abandon your wife or abandon your kids, but rather to reinform and reassert what Jesus has basically been saying. That if you're married, honor God and obey him in your marriage. If you're single, Honor God and obey God in your singleness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32, Paul writes, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married carries about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and in spirit. But she who is married carries about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. One paraphrase reads this way. I want you to live as free of complication as possible. When you were unmarried, you're free to concentrate on pleasing the master, unquote. That word that Paul uses, but I want you to be without care, is a word that means to be torn in two different directions, torn between two options. 
Paul is in effect saying, I don't want you to tear yourselves apart over this issue. If you're single, pause and ask yourself this question. Am I doing something for Jesus? Or am I complaining to Jesus? Because for some people, they might be thinking, I don't want to be single. Or I regret, or I reject this season of singleness. But the truth is that there's never a season of selfishness for the married or for the single. That we are called always as Christians to a season of selflessness. Are you using this season in your life to be used by God to expand the kingdom? Or are you scrambling to find a romantic relationship with someone? Are you squandering your season of singleness? Did you ever stop and think that God might be wanting to use you in this very special time in your life? And so some of you might be thinking, well, you mean if I'm married, I don't, all of my special time is gone? That's not what I'm saying at all. Don't confuse the passage with your own circumstances. What Jesus is saying, I think, throughout the text is that there's a time to honor him and serve him. And that that honoring and serving might take different directions at different times in your life. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be torn apart over the issue. Marriage requires maturity and responsibility. Let me ask you a question, those of you who are married. Does age always bring with it maturity? Pretend it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. Yeah, age doesn't always guarantee maturity. Paul's emphasis is to live a single lifestyle for the Lord. Again, does that mean that married people can't have a married lifestyle in the Lord. Of course, we're to have a married lifestyle in the Lord. Some scholars have pointed out that George Whitfield and John Wesley would have been much better off if they had remained single. But let the scholars tell that to George Whitfield and John Wesley's children. Is it true that history tells us that George Whitfield and John Wesley experienced some great difficulties because of the unique challenges and ministries that were given to them? The answer is yes. Am I promoting an elevation of ministry over marriage? No, I am not. What I am promoting is a lifestyle of loving the Lord and serving the Lord and honoring the Lord, whether you're married or whether you're single. Singleness presents opportunities to serve. At the end of verse 12, Jesus says, He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Again, Jesus seems to be saying, at least in the narrow, literal sense of the word, those who are called to be married, stay married. Those who are called to be single and celibate, accept 
this time of singleness and celibacy. Jesus may also be saying more broadly, more generally, everything that I've said about marriage and everything that I've said about being single should be accepted. And I think that that's probably the meaning. I also think that it's a warning because the disciples were to reject false teachings about marriage and they were to reject the false teachings about divorce and they were to reject the false teachings about what it meant to be single. Remember when Jesus is saying these words and he's speaking to these disciples that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any reason or no reason at all. That the Jewish man could initiate the divorce by just simply saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. In the Roman culture and in the Greek culture, there were limited circumstances where the woman could initiate the divorce. And again, in the Roman culture, there were slaves and there were eunuchs and there were people who because of congenital defects and because of war and because of accident found themselves in unwelcome circumstances. So I think that that's part of what he's, he's talking about. The disciples were to put away the false practices and the false ideas that were accepted by the religious leaders or that were embraced by the popular culture. And I think that that's part of what we can glean from this text. Because the possibility exists that the popular culture is going to invite you to accept their notion of marriage or to accept their notion of singleness. You live in a culture and a society that has already made the decision that sexual expression trumps every other freedom. But Jesus is inviting you to love him and believe him and believe what he has to say about marriage and believe what he has to say about being single. Married people and single people are to model Christ. Christ didn't give you the gift of marriage, again, to be selfish or the gift of being single to be selfish. The years that God has given you is to serve. And again, some of you quietly, you can't even begin to say it out loud. You, inside of your heart, you're saying, but this is a gift I never wanted. This is like Christmas where people give me stuff that I don't need and I don't want. But God is calling you to be very wise with what he's entrusted you to. And what about the person who finds himself or herself single? Or single again after being married. And this whole single scene is just so totally foreign to them. And they struggle. Because in their heart of hearts they want so desperately to be married. Or they struggle with loneliness. I read a letter that was written to Ann Landers. It reads, quote, Please come home early. This was the most unreasonable request ever made by my wife of almost 40 years. 
She didn't make this request often. It came mostly on Saturdays and Sundays and holidays. But it seemed that I always had so many things to do that in spite of her gentle urging, I rarely came home early. I don't want to give you the impression that I was never home. I was home a lot. We rarely did anything out of the ordinary. We enjoyed the kids and the grandchildren. We listened to music. We read the paper. We had meals together. Sometimes we would just talk about how the day had gone. Now I know why she asked me so often to please come home early. She wasn't just lonely. She was lonely for me. When she passed away a short time ago, I learned firsthand what loneliness is all about. I have a supportive family and many good friends. I'm free now to go places and do things, but I'm lonesome. Lonesome for her. Now that she's gone, I found the time to come home early. But there is nobody to come home to. There's nobody to do those single things with. Or those simple things with, such as watching the evening news or listening to music or, or reading the paper. And nobody cares how my day went. If I should get a call from the good Lord to please come home early, I won't fight it, unquote. Many of you can recognize, empathize, and identify with what this person is saying. But no one is invited to heaven prematurely. No one is invited to heaven unannounced or unwelcome. So we still have to find a way to come to grips with what it means to be by yourself. Loneliness is a huge problem among singles and, and people who are single again. I, I read a study by the American Council of All Things Life Insurance. It reported that the most lonely group in America are college students. I was surprised by that. Second, it talked about those who were divorced, welfare recipients, single mothers, rural students, housewives, the elderly... How lonely can a person be? Charles Swindoll years ago mentioned an ad in a Kansas newspaper which read, quote, I will listen to you talk for 30 minutes without comment for $5. Now, when he wrote this, the minimum wage was $1.95. Swindoll said, quote, sounds like a hoax, doesn't it? But the person was serious. Did anybody call? You bet. It wasn't long before this individual was receiving 10 to 20 calls a day. The pain of loneliness was so sharp that some were willing to try anything for a half hour of companionship. Is it wrong to want to be with someone? No. Is it want, wrong to experience friendship and fellowship? and relationship, and companionship. No. What about intimacy? Remember, physical intimacy with the opposite sex is the reward of a commitment. 
in biblical marriage. Perhaps this is one of the great clues of whether or not you're called to be single. You're alone, but you're not lonely. You're alone, but you're fulfilled, you're content, you're satisfied, you're fulfilled, you're content, and you're satisfied in your relationship with the Lord. Again, our culture, and sometimes even the church, views single people as someone who isn't quite right. And that's a horrible, terrible, insensitive mistake to make. According to a recent Barna poll, it said more than four out of every 10 adults in the United States of America isn't married, producing a singles population that's larger than the total national population of all but 11 of the world's nations. Think about this, 192 nations, only 11 nations on the planet Earth are bigger than the single population of the United States of America. Barna indicated that those who have never been married make up the lion's share of America's 82 million single adults, representing nearly six out of every 10 singles. Adults who are currently divorced are one quarter of the single population. Widowed adults form the remaining one sixth of the population. Whereas men slightly outnumber women among those who have never been married, divorced women slightly outnumber divorced men, but widowed women outnumber widowed men 4.3 to 1. And so you can imagine, there's a huge opportunity for you to care about someone, to be sensitive towards someone. To ask someone about their life and their life circumstances. You know, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about small groups. And we've been talking about the opportunities for men and women, both married and single, to involve each other in each other's lives. And I just want to encourage you that that opportunity still exists. You know, there's no quick or easy answers for the problem of loneliness. The poet John Milton wrote, quote, Loneliness is the first thing which God's eye named not good. He's right. Oh, everyone who knows the scripture that says it's not good for a man to be alone. H.G. Wells on his 65th birthday wrote, I'm 65 and I'm lonely, and I've never found peace. Real peace can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about the absence of conflict, and I'm not just talking about that gnawing emptiness that's inside of the person who desperately craves companionship. I'm talking about the need to experience redemption and then restoration of a heart that was meant to have a right relationship with God and Christ. Real friendship can ease the pain, but it won't ultimately fill the void. 
Sometimes friendship can cause pain and frustration. But let me ask you a question. Do you hate being all by yourself? Do you hate being alone? It's a different question than do you hate being alone with the Lord? I got to be honest with you. There are times in my life where I crave the opportunity to be by myself. And I absolutely love being alone with the Lord. When I'm alone with the Lord, the Lord shows me things and reveals things and speaks to me about things that sometimes gives me the privilege and the opportunity to share them with you. You see, I think we have a misunderstanding. I think we have a distorted view of togetherness. We think that togetherness means that we should experience everything together. But I'm going to suggest to you that there are some things that can only be experienced when you're by yourself and with the Lord. And then you have an opportunity to experience it with others because God is changing you. You see, I want to be the kind of pastor that you enjoy being with. Would it be wrong to tell you that I want you to be the kind of Christian, the man of God and the woman of God, the person who loves the Lord, that I enjoy being with? The truth Ask yourself that question. Am I the kind of person that people enjoy being with? In contrast to the popular culture in some segments of the church, remember what Jesus says about marriage and about what it means to be single. Clearly, singleness is hard for many people. There's an ongoing battle with loneliness. Marriage was designed for unity, companionship, friendship. I think that that's why most people are called to be married. But sometimes we experience a season of singleness. And I use that term season because I want to point something out to you. According to the Bible, no one will be permanently single if you have a right relationship with God and Christ. You see, the Bible gives us a metaphor, a picture of a marriage that takes place in the future between the groom and the bride. And in that metaphor, of course, Jesus is the groom and we're the bride of Christ. Alone? Maybe for now, but not forever. Von Roberts, a rector at Oxford, writes, quote, Thank God for the gift of singleness. Whatever your experience of singleness, recognize it as a gift from God and make the most of it for as long as you have it. He writes, Do all you can to be godly. It's easy for those who are single to lapse into selfish, self-centered lifestyle or into sexual sin, whether in thought or deed. Be self-disciplined and accountable to others. Keep your eyes fixed on heaven. It is our eternal relationship with Christ that ultimately matters. He writes a final word for those who are married. 
Don't think of singleness as second best. Christian preacher and author John Chapman spoke of friends taking him for long walks and, and telling him that he should be married. He commented, quote, it would have been a great help if they'd read the Bible, wouldn't it? You see, not all of your friends believe the Bible. Not all of your friends believe what Jesus has to say about marriage, about divorce, about being single, about being single again. Again, Von Roberts writes, keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Human marriage matters. But even human marriage won't last forever. Our relationship is first with Christ. And the moment that you believe what Jesus has to say about marriage and about divorce and about being single will provide you with the greatest opportunity to make the most meaningful impact in the lives of the people around you. I so much want to be the kind of pastor that you'd like to be with. And I'd so like you to think about the kind of person that you could be so that you could be with each other in the most healthy, accountable, and responsible way. So let's pray again. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a Savior who comes into the world, a world that you created, a world broken and marred, Lord, we don't want to be insensitive from people who, for some, through no fault of their own, and even for others who may have contributed to a season of brokenness in their own lives, Lord, we pray that with sensitivity and compassion, we would remind people that there's a Savior who loves them, who cares for them, who died for them, and who rose from the dead. A Jesus who loves us and cares for us, who is committed to making our marriages wholesome and our season of singleness fruitful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be the kind of men and women who could offer the greatest amount of support, the greatest amount of encouragement. Lord, we pray that whatever season we find ourselves in, it won't be a season of selfishness, but of selflessness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.